Welcome to Millerville Community Church. My name is Beth Schmidt, and it's the Sunday after Easter in 2020. And we're in the midst of the COVID crisis, but really it's for most of us about isolation, which is something we're not familiar with. And tempers will be a bit frayed right now. We've been just in our own homes now for probably for sure, three weeks, for some, four, even five weeks. And the weeks are progressing, and at first it was a bit of a novelty, and now it's dragging on. And sometimes with those frayed nerves and frayed tempers, we say things in our homes that we maybe regret later, and we need forgiveness. And today's story is about forgiveness. It's the story of two brothers and it's a story of true forgiveness. So um, last we were here, we were talking about Laban and Jacob and their parting. And if you recall, Laban chased Jacob down when Jacob finally left in the middle of the night with all his wives and children and his flocks. And uh, he left because God called him to go to the land of his birth back in Shechem back in Israel, um, which wasn't known as Israel then, but what we know it today as, Laban followed him. And it was three days later, he chased him down. And the two of them met, and there was discord, there was unforgiveness, there was anger, there was mistrust, there was even theft. And the two of them really had a difficult time of it. And what they finally agreed to is they agreed to what they called a truce or a covenant between them, but they called the place Mitzpah, which means God is our witness. God is the one who will watch over this covenant because they really did not trust each other. And so they called God on to be their witness that they would not cross the line and come to each other's territory in anger and dispute and uh, with arms raised. So um, that was where they were able to get to. That's not forgiveness. That's called a truce. And there's a big difference between a truce and forgiveness. So let's open in prayer. Father, we just pray that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be before you, um, and our face would be able to see your face, um, face to face, penile. And so, Lord, I would just ask that as we look into your word, that you would speak to us about forgiveness. Perhaps there's people that are in our lives that we need to forgive. Perhaps there's somebody to whom we need to ask forgiveness. And we would ask that you would be teaching us out of your scriptures, your powerful word that you have given to us, that we might have understanding of ourselves, of you, of your ways, and of how you are calling us to live out in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Genesis chapters 33 and um, chapter, actually chapter 32 and 33. And uh, we're looking at how Jacob and Esau are going to come together and what's going to happen when these two men meet. So as I said, Jacob is on his way back to the place of his birth. And at that place of his birth where his mom and dad are and where he's thinking Esau still is, um, he's nervous. He's afraid. 
And on his way, and remember, it's the Lord who's called him here. And on his way, he meets these two, um, or t these angels of God, it says. And it's only these two verses, the first two verses of Genesis, where we see them uh, interacting with Jacob. It's very short. And in this short um, action, we have Jacob who comes, and Jacob um, is walking with these angels of God, and he saw them, and he said, oh, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahaneum. Mahaneum, that means the place of two companies. So once again, just like at Bethel, we see Jacob naming the place, the place of God. And so Jacob, um, in naming this place of God, two companies, we think, and that's, that's it, those two verses, and then it moves, the story moves on. And we think, you know, why is, are those two verses in there? There's really no explanation given, but in the translation of what Mahanaim means, which is two companies. It's down at verse 7 that we kind of see the connection between these two verses and what follows. And what he does is he has these um, two companies, and he separates his family into two companies. And I think it's probably something to do with that discussion with these angels of God and him naming that place Mahanaim. So he separates all of his flocks and his herds and everything else into two companies. Because remember, his fear of Esau is great. When he left Esau, he had cheated Esau, and Esau was angry with him, and so angry that he even threatened to kill him. And so he threatened to kill um, e uh, Jacob last we saw him. So it's no small thing that Jacob is feeling um, this threat as he goes back to his homeland. Remember, they don't have any way of communication. There's no means of being able to communicate with one another. And so it's been 20 years since he was there. And this 20 years later, he's coming back. He has no idea of what is happening with Esau. So he comes up with this idea, and he thinks, well, you know, I'm going to send messengers ahead of me. It was kind of a prudent thing to do. And so he sends these messengers ahead to find out, you know, what's going on at home? What's happening in the territory that I left 20 years ago? You know, are mom and dad even still alive? Where is Esau? And so, and how is Esau doing? And how has he fared? And he gives all these questions to the messengers, and they carry on. And they go to find Esau and to come back with a report to Jacob. So off they go, and they make their way down into the area where, um, you know, Isaac and Rebekah live, and no Esau there. And it would seem that, um, you know, through the the discord about the wives that Esau married, that he's actually moved down into his wives' area where they came from, which is south of where Isaac and Rebekah live in a place called Seir, which later became known as Edom, named after Esau. And so he's moved down to Seir, S-E-I-R, and he's living there amongst the Ishmaelites. He had married Ish an Ishmaelite woman. And so that's where he's living um, amongst the, 
you know, remember that Ishmael and Isaac were half-brothers, and it did not go well for them. Ishmael was very hard on Isaac and finally had to leave home because of it. And so there's discord between Isaac and Ishmael um, to a certain degree. And so he's gone down to live with these people that really are not in harmony with his mom and dad or, you know, what will become a broader family when Jacob returns. So here is Jacob. He sends these messengers down. These messengers have to keep going further south, so it takes a while for them to get back. And finally, they come back to Jacob. And now it would seem that he has actually, by sending these messengers, alerted Esau to the fact that he's returning. And so the men say to uh, Jacob, when they get back, they say, well, we found him. And Jacob said, and how does it go? And they go, well, we have some kind of bad news because Esau's on our heels. He's coming, but he's not coming alone. He's coming with 400 men. This was bad news indeed for Jacob because he's thinking, you don't bring 400 men with you just to have a cup of tea. And so he's worried, and he's really in desperate need of help. And he's looking at his family, and yes, he's rich. He's got lots of livestock. He's got lots of children. He's now got essentially four wives, two wives and two maids that have borne children to him. So he seems wealthy, but he doesn't have a lot of fighting men. He's got some servants but he doesn't have a stronghold. And here comes Esau with 400, it would appear, fighting men with him. And so Jacob is very afraid. And now, in his great fear, he turns to God. I have a mug, and that mug says on it, if you only turn to God and pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. And so Jacob's in trouble. He's at the end of his resources. And I have a question for us. You know, do we only turn to God? Do you only turn to God when you're in trouble, when there's nothing else you can do, when you've tried everything you can think of in your problem and you can't figure it out, and then you think, ah, now I have to turn to God. I think there's a lesson here for us, and that is that if we have that daily walk with the Lord, we're not going to just turn to him when we're in trouble. We're going to constantly be in his presence. And so this is a lesson that Jacob is still in the process of learning. Well, God has been with Jacob, and Jacob in his fear, listen to what he prays. This is what he says. This is out of Genesis 32. And I'm reading verses 10 to 12. I am unworthy of all thy loving kindness, he prays to the Lord, and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to your servant. For my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For thou didst say, 
I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he remembers the promise that God gave to him, but he's not been really acting on it. But God has been faithful, and he has blessed Jacob. He's given Jacob all these children. He's given Jacob um, all these, you know, the, the wives that he has. He's given Jacob uh, land. He's going to be giving him land. He's promised him land, the land that he will show him, and he's calling him back to that land. And it was God who called him to leave Haran and come back down into the land that he had promised. God made all these promises, and more than anything, God had promised him the Abrahamic covenant. This is no small thing. That Abrahamic covenant promise to Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his father, and now to him. And it's, it's actually these three men in particular that the Abrahamic covenant went to. And others join in, but it's always under the Abrahamic covenant. So this is an amazing covenant that God has given to Jacob. And he gave it to him when he went with just his staff up to the north country 20 years ago. And so now God has richly blessed him. And um, God has been with him. And now Jacob is saying, oh God, if only you would be with me. He's not really quite getting it, although it's a very good thing that he has turned to God and asked for help. And God always is there. But, you know, hasn't there been proof enough? Hasn't there been proof enough in Jacob's life that God is with him, that it's good for him? But, you know, even at the end of his life, which comes quite a long time later, and, you know, it's actually several years before he even dies. He says to Pharaoh when he meets Pharaoh in Egypt, when his son Joseph has been through, you know, the whole Joseph story, and Joseph brings his father down to Egypt to protect him during the famine. And so now, you know, um, Jacob is 136 years old. And Pharaoh is meeting Jacob, uh, this father of Joseph, whom the Pharaoh loves, and he says to Jacob, how goes it with you? And you know how Jacob responds? He says, you know, my years have been few. Well, he's 136 years old. I would not call that a few. And they have been troublesome. They've been difficult. That's really how Jacob has viewed his whole life. And yet his whole life, God has blessed him and been gracious to him. God has forgiven him. God has been close to him. God has watched his every step. Yes, Jacob has had some difficulties, but God has always been there. And I have a question for us. How do we look on our past? Do we look back and just see toil and trouble and difficulty and always struggling? Or do we see God's good hand upon us? Because his hand is good, and he is always there for us, ready to bless us, and has blessed us abundantly. And so, you know, that old song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and you'll be surprised at seeing what God has done. And so, um, let's do that. So, now he comes up with this idea, and he puts um, this gift together of all these sheep and some cattle and, you know, all these goods. 
as really like an appeasement gift for Esau. And he's going to send it down ahead of him to Esau. And hopefully this big gift will kind of make Esau go easy on him because he's Jacob's really defenseless. And so he's quite worried. And so he separates his wives. He has um, Leah first with her sons and daughter, Dinah. And then he, um, uh, well, actually the maids first, and then Leah, and then Rachel. And each one of them, of course, have children from him. So he has the children with the moms. And so he separates them all out into these sort of sub-family groups, which really is very troublesome. But anyway, that's how he did it. And uh, he separates them out. And I, I can't think but that, you know, he saves Rachel and Joseph. Met Benjamin's not born yet, so just Rachel and Joseph at the very end so that, you know, if Esau starts killing, he's got the best at the last because he loved Rachel. And um, really, he didn't love Leah. So he um, then sets um, them up, and he gets them to cross over the stream, and then he stays put, and he's going to pray. And night falls, and he starts into the wrestling match of his life. So this angel of the Lord um, comes down and meets him. And the angel of the Lord wrestles with him, and it says that it's a man. And so this angel of the Lord has appeared as a man, and he's wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob wrestles with this man all night long. No sleep. And all night he's wrestling with this man. And this man is not letting him go. And it says that the man did not prevail against Jacob. They wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And finally, towards dawn, this man just touches Jacob's thigh the socket of his thigh, and immediately Jacob is crippled and stayed crippled, actually, it would seem. And it was just with a small touch, and yet he's been wrestling all night long. And there's a really terrific scripture that helps us with this because it's a difficult scripture because we, we understand this man to be from God. How is it that he can't defeat Jacob and they wrestle and he doesn't prevail? And it really helps to look at Hosea. So if you turn with me to Hosea, and we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 3 to 5. And scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. And listen to what it says. Hosea 12, verse 3. In the womb he took his brother by the heel. Remember that? And in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor because he's weeping with this angel of the Lord and he's saying, you know, I will not let you go until you bless me. And now it says he wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. That was where he first was going into, you know, the north country where he 20 years ago had heard from God the place of covenant. It's a place of covenant for Jacob. And there he spoke with us. Now we get who it is. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. So who is Jacob wrestling with? 
He's wrestling with God himself. And we know that when man can see God, that it's always Jesus that he's seen. And so here is Jacob, even in this long time before Jesus comes through Mary, here is Jesus wrestling with Jacob. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man says to him, I'm reading out of, um, in verse 27 of Genesis 32, and the man said to him, what is your name? And Jacob says, it's Jacob. It's not that God doesn't know that. But what does Jacob mean again? His name means deceiver or interloper or, you know, one who grasps. And so he says, you know, my name is Jacob. That's my identity is really what he's saying. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. Your name shall no longer be deceiver, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Israel means one who struggles. And that was the hallmark of Jacob's life. So to have his name changed to Israel, one who struggles, is really an indicator of how he managed his whole entire life. And really, just as a side note, he's really a picture of the nation of Israel who struggled with God throughout their history. So Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, this is the man, said, why is it that you ask my name? In other words, you know who I am. Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named again the place, but this time he calls it Peniel. And Peniel means I met God face to face. Pene, face to face, El means God. So he says, I've met God face to face. I have seen him face to face. And yet, my life has been preserved. Do you know that if we are to meet the Almighty God face to face, we would totally be destroyed in the glory of his light, in all of his holiness, we could not, ju not just not stand, not just fall on our face, but we would actually be destroyed. And the only way that we can be before God is through Jesus Christ. And this is what's happened with Jacob. It's Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, who is God, very God of very God, he is God. That is how he's able to see him face to face. And even yet, he has to see him in a place of righteousness. So Jacob here we see, because he's not destroyed, we know that Jacob, even though he struggles, even though he has difficulties, even though he has trials with God and struggles and wrestles with God, we see that he actually is standing, even in the Old Testament, in the blood of Jesus. That is, Jesus has rescued him. Jesus has saved him. Jesus has declared him righteousness. And because he's righteous, he is not destroyed. And so we um, see that really that is how any of us can be before the living God, is only 
through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice for us, even Jacob. So he um, is fighting with him, and he finds out actually that there um, is a, a name for God given here, the Lord of hosts. And um, we see that as he um, is struggling, that that was from Hosea, he's called the Lord of hosts. That's God's um, military name, his name before all of his fighting people, all of his fighting angelic host. And I think, you know, also all of his, um, the people of God. So he is the Lord of hosts, his fighting name, captain of the army, the one who Joshua will see someday. And so um, the Lord of hosts, he fights on our behalf. He fights against evil is what he fights against. And he fights for righteousness. And for those who are righteous, he is our Lord of hosts. He is our captain of our army. So, um, and if you notice that it doesn't say, just look carefully at what the scriptures say. It's not saying that he couldn't prevail against Jacob. It's saying he did not prevail against Jacob. And that word prevail there means to just kind of make it go his way. So the Lord gives us <coughs> opportunity and choice, and he's even giving that to Jacob here. And so, you know, we may struggle with the Lord, but the Lord is calling us. He's drawing us to trust him, to believe him, just like he's calling Jacob to trust him, to believe him. The Lord can touch us, and we're crippled. Whatever. The Lord is very powerful. He's sovereign over all, but he withholds that power in order for us to be able to come to him and to choose to follow him. And so um, we see that with his name changed, and now, you know, he's crippled, so now, you know, he thought that he was having trouble before, and now he's really in trouble. And um, he's got to face this Esau. So this confirmation, though, that Jesus has found him righteous, and in that confirmation, after that night of wrestling, he's going to now have to face Esau. And he lifts up his eyes, and he sees Esau coming up over the hill with 400 men along with him. And so he's fearful. And um, he, first of all, has, you know, Remember, he has Bilhah and um, Zephor and all the others, uh, Leah and Rachel. They're all lined up with their children, and they're going to go forward. But he actually goes first, and he bows down seven times. One, two, and seven times he bows down before Esau as he approaches Esau. And Esau from the distance sees him bowing down, these seven times indicating this great humility that Jacob is has before Esau. And really, he's physically demonstrating to Esau before he even talks to Esau that he is regretful, that he is sorry for what has happened, that he is sorry for the discord, that he is um, asking forgiveness, really. And so Esau, he has these 400. And so he's probably himself, just think about Esau's position. When they left, Esau knew that, he, that Jacob had the birthright 
and Jacob had the blessing from his father. And Jacob left, and he was under favorable circumstances. Even though Jacob fled, Jacob is the one under favorable circumstances, and he's quite conniving. 20 years later, he could be a lot worse than he was even 20 years ago. Esau has no idea what Jacob's going to be like. He doesn't know if Jacob has 400 fighting men or even more. He has no idea what he's going to encounter. And Esau doesn't really trust Jacob when he comes over that hill. And so he makes sure that he's got lots of protection with him. And so these 400 men come with him. And he's ready. He's ready, and he's just kind of waiting to see the lay of the land. And when he sees Jacob seven times to bow down in humility as he approaches him, Esau knows, ah, he's come in peace. And instead of getting the fighting men to take arms and charge, he instead himself runs to Jacob and he embraces Jacob and he hugs him and they weep and they kiss one another and they hug and they just keep clinging to one another. All those years of fear, all those years of hatred, all those years of feeling unjustly done by, all that stuff is melted away in forgiveness. And Jacob, in his asking forgiveness, Esau gives him forgiveness. And we see these two brothers come together. And we never see them dispute again. Now, they don't live together. Remember, Esau has moved down to Seir. Jacob moves to Shechem, which is north of that, in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. And they live side by side, but peacefully not at arms with one another. Now, down the road, their offspring are going to have terrible troubles, but these two men have reconciled. And the forgiveness that they have is lovely. And when ja Jacob gets to his homeland, to Shechem, he sets up an altar there. And it's very interesting because this time, the altar is something different. He erects the altar and he calls it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. He doesn't name the place this time. He's really saying, God, the living God, is my God, because his name is Israel. He says he is the God of Israel. He's not some distant God. He's not the God of his father or Abraham. He's now my God. And you know, um, it's one of the things that I've, I've worked a lot with youth and in camps and um, with teenagers. And one of the things I always stress to them is there comes a time in your life when you must make the choice. With if you've been raised in a family, a God-fearing family who loves the Lord, you must make a choice between is this going to be my family God or is this going to be my God? And that's an individual choice that each one of us must make. Is this going to be the God of my wife, or the God of my husband, or the God of my parents years ago, or the God of my culture, or the God of this church that I go to, 
or is this going to be my God? And the Lord God Almighty is calling each one of us to make that choice that we are moving from a cultural understanding to a personal relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. And so um, we see that Jacob is really, it's taking him years. He's making that transition. But I want us to turn into the New Testament um, where Jesus says something to us about forgiveness because uh, we can't not look at what Jesus says when we talk about forgiveness. It's in uh, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And this is really um, carrying on in the Sermon of the Mount. We think of the Sermon of the Mount as Matthew 5, but it's all the way to Matthew 7. And uh, in the midst of that, in chapter 6, right after he's given the Lord's Prayer, um, he says this to us. Um, you know, we've asked for forgiveness for our trespasses. And then he goes into this one. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This has been often misunderstood. We've thought, well, I've got to learn how to forgive, and if I would learn how to forgive, well, then God will forgive me. And, but if I don't learn how to forgive, God's not going to forgive me. So in other words, we're saying God's forgiveness is conditional. It's conditional on my ability to forgive. That is not what the scripture is teaching. And I actually think this is where our English kind of fails us because that's not the understanding that God ever gives to us. And we use scripture to interpret scripture. We find in many scriptures that his love comes without strings attached. Like he loves us and he forgives us. And so we don't have to forgive first in order to receive forgiveness. But he is saying, if you have been forgiven by God and you understand this fully, then you will forgive. He tells the story, Jesus tells the story, the parable of a, a master, and this master has a servant, and it turns out the servant has owes his master an enormous sum of money. There's no hope that he can repay, more than he would earn in a lifetime. He cannot repay it. And the master forgives the servant this debt. Well, then the servant, he, you know, he's happy about being forgiven for the debt. He goes out and, oh, he sees this friend on the street, and this friend owes him money. And he s grabs him by the scruff of the neck, and he says, pay me what you owe me. It's like a little sum. It's like a few dollars, and the guy can't. He doesn't have any money. And he says, I can't pay you. And he says, then off to the debtor's prison with you. And this report gets back to his master. And when the report gets back, the master says, What? I forgave you so much, and this little thing, you can't forgive somebody else. And so um, Jesus is teaching us that if we really know God face to face, if we really understand how he has forgiven us, then we will see any offense that others have done against us as paltry, small, tiny in comparison to what we have offended God. And so God says, I forgive you. 
And if you really understand that, you'll easily forgive others. And forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is all about learning how to let it go. It's learning not to take action on the offense that some other person has given me. It's learning to let it go. And so God says that's what forgiveness is. That's understanding. Um, that's having even just a glimpse of what the forgiveness of God is toward us. Dear friend, is there someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone who has offended you and maybe it's been deeply? Maybe it's been a huge travesty. And maybe if other people knew about it, maybe they do, they would think this is horrible. But still, it is a small thing compared to our offense, our great offense against God. And he has freely forgiven us, no strings attached. And so he calls us to be like him. If you've seen God face to face, Peniel, then you will be able to learn to forgive others and to not act on the trespass that they have trespassed against you. How great is God's love for us? I'm just going to end with looking at Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. And Paul is, he's writing to the Romans, and he's been talking to them, and it's, all, it's like all of a sudden he just bursts out in this praise to God. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Like, just go back to what we said about forgiveness. Is it us who teaches the Lord how to forgive? I'll forgive so, Lord, you can learn how to forgive? That's essentially what Paul is saying here. No, we don't teach the Lord. He teaches us. And he's forgiven us so that we can learn to forgive one another. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, Lord God, teach us how to forgive as you have forgiven. How great is your forgiveness. Help us to see this. Help us to believe it. Help us to walk in that face-to-face -face fellowship with you. And I pray that we would learn to forgive others as you have forgiven us, that we would walk in peace with all men. For you, Lord, have forgiven us much. In Jesus' name, amen.